Okay, well, we are going to try to get through verses 8 through 7, well, actually, probably 8 through 14. And last week, one thing we included was a working definition of biblical love, and we're going to work off of that a little bit, but uh, John and the Holy Spirit through John are going to enlarge that a bit for us. So it says, agape love is other-centered, self-sacrificing, willful affection, which we mentioned is, uh, at least Jonathan Edwards would say, an inclination of the soul strongly toward the ultimate good of the other person. And it is manifested or shown in affections, actions, and words that promote that ultimate good. And verse... Seven, we won't go back over that, but he said it was an old commandment. It's one we had from the beginning. And we saw both in the Old Testament and then in Christ and even built on from there. Uh, it had already been a commandment that they had known, so it wasn't like this was brand new. But then it says, uh, yet it is a new commandment. So verse 8 of chapter 2. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So I'm, I'm going to work you a little bit more. Last week I think I said you could all chill out well. I don't want you all chilled out today. Let's uh, kind of dig in and engage. So we already saw that it was an old commandment that they'd had from the beginning. So in what sense, and you know, obviously we're going to dig into it a little bit more, do you think he's saying it's a new commandment? So in what sense is to love one another a new commandment as John's going to talk about it? I can weigh in. It's an old commandment that we understand in a new way. Okay, and how, what, what makes it the new way? What's the new way that we can understand it? I guess it kind of softs off the Ten Commandments in a fresh new light about loving God. Okay, all right. So, and look at the verse. Uh, it's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So, I'll pick it up, I guess, a little from there. So, in him, we're talking about it's in Christ. And there's a couple of parallel passages we'll kind of look at that'll help us a little bit. So actually, the, you, don't have, you have almost no blanks, just a few left over from last week, so I'll give those to you. So that first part, it is a new commandment. Uh, love, freshly and deeply embodied in Christ. So some parallel passages, John 13, so again, same author. Uh, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he adds, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that kind of emphasizes the importance of it. And... And he's saying there, he's just been talking about that he's not going to be with them much longer, that he's going to die in their place. And then he says, this is the, basically the living out of a new commandment. So it's new in the sense that Christ has come and embodied it uh, perfectly and powerfully. First uh, John 3.16, so next chapter of First John, <clears throat> says, We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So it's, it's new in the sense that it's been embodied in Christ. So it, it was out there before, uh, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, was out there, but he is embodying it. So the, the second be there is energized in us by the Holy Spirit. So they have a new ability to live out uh, their lives in love. So John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Christ was promising that to the disciples that uh, the spirit has been with you. He will be in you. And you're uh, probably very familiar with Galatians 5.22 that starts out, but the fruit of the spirit is love. Uh, and of course, there's a much longer list than that, but that's uh, the first one they're given. So <clears throat> it's not just them or us trying to work up this, uh, excuse me, um, trying to work up this love in ourselves, but you have the spirit working. So it's, it's new in that sense. And then finally, he mentions uh, it's a time where the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these. We talked about dark and light. And really, when you look at the world, if you're not looking at the right things, you can say, really? The, uh, the darkness is passing away and the light has come because there is still a lot of darkness uh, in our world in one sense. So what does he mean by that? Uh, so John chapter 1, familiar territory. Starting with verse 4, it says of Christ, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So where there was no Messiah, there was no Savior, there was no one embodying love in this way, there was no true light, uh, that that has now come. So again, it really is new in the sense that Christ has come. Uh, a similar passage in Luke 1, just a, a beautiful description. It says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. It's talking about John the Baptist. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Just a, a really vibrant, uh, wonderful description of Christ coming into a dark world. All right, so then it, it moves from, so there's a new commandment, and then he moves into all who walk in the light love their brothers and sisters. So um, John, as always, will be very black and white. So verse 9 of First uh, John chapter 2 says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So I think I put on your sheet there, uh, when it says hates his brother or loves his brother, it's a present, active, so it's kind of this ongoing, persistent, one or the other. And you read those things, and like with a lot of things with John, you kind of go, well, is there another choice? Is there something in the middle? I just don't really care that much about them, or I don't really, uh, I don't really hate or love them. He doesn't really leave us that. It's like when Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. And so we want to look a little bit at, you know, what does that mean? Because Probably everybody in this room has people you, um, you know, in the world in general and even in the church body that you just really like and you really feel like, I, I just love them. And some others that, eh, you know, maybe, maybe we annoy people. And so, you know, that, that makes it a little harder to say, no, I just really love them. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Um, in the sense of, so how do we either love uh, or hate them? And, and it's also interesting where he says um, that the darkness has blinded his eyes, the one who hates. 
uh, where it's the contrasted with the one who loves that can see and there's no cause for stumbling. So you've heard the quote, probably, love is blind. So, okay, I'm going to ask you to work again on this one. So what do you think is even meant by that? Uh, I know it takes a little courage to go out and say this is what I think that means. But, and is it true? In what sense? So why, where do you think that, Mark? It's emotional. What do you mean um, by that? I mean that um, when they're saying love is blind, the person is walking into it with only their emotions and not their intellect. Okay, good. So you don't have to answer. You can if you want. But anybody, is, is that true? Is love blind? I'm not saying that love in general is blind, right? Like I'm not, like in, in Christian circles, we do counseling, right? We're, and the youth, Chris, is going through a long series of biblical manhood and womanhood, and the idea is don't walk into this blind, right? Love is Good. not blind. Good. You can, you can do your research. You don't, uh, you don't want to marry an unbeliever. That would be fool, the most foolish thing you could do. Good. Okay. Yeah, so it would almost be like infatuation maybe yeah, is yeah, blind. In the world, yeah. In the world, they, everything is emotional. Right. right? They, I like her, I'm going to marry her. Two days later, they're in love. Yeah. And, and they know nothing about each other. Yeah, good. Okay, so, and this kind of says the opposite. It says really uh, the one who hates is walking in the darkness and their eyes are blinded. The one who loves can see. So, yeah, one more question. So, how does that work? In what sense could you understand that, that hatred could be blind and that love is the one that sees? Not an easy one, but yeah. Love is a, is a choice, it's a commitment that even though I see these faults in this individual, I'm going to commit to love them and care for them regardless. So, in the other sense, love is blind as you just are naively going into a situation or, or just kind of emotionally overlooking somebody's faults. But in this sense, love is a committed action. I will love this person despite their faults, despite the things that irritate me. I will overlook those for the greater good of loving them by Christ loves me. Sounds good. Okay, and how about the flip side, anybody, is why would hatred be more likely to be blind, Josh. It's all a matter of what you're being blind to. In this case, hatred is blind to the big picture, the reality of what's going on spiritually. So hatred doesn't see the grace of God, doesn't see that that's a person made in the image of God, just sees, I don't like that person. It misses the vast majority of details in blind hatred over this one relatively minor detail that it gets. Okay, good. All right, well, let's uh, expand on that a little bit. That's a, that's a pretty good start. Um, yeah, I mean, biblical love, I mean, you're more likely that somebody that you really love to study them, to know them, to know what kind of makes them tick, what helps them, what hurts them. Um, so in that sense, you really have... Uh, much more, you can see much more when you love somebody where, as Josh said, with hatred, it's, it's yeah, kind of just this focused on this part that you just hate. Um, God, as in all things, demonstrates thing, the love most perfectly. So you think about God's love for us. Uh, a couple of familiar passages, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then a even more um, extended passage, Ephesians 2, 4. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so you have God looking and seeing lost people who are uh, 
dead in their transgression. So not a pretty picture at all and knows exactly what they need and provides it, does that out of his own grace. So again, when you love somebody in a more God-like or Christ-like fashion, when you see the weakness, you're trying to do what you can to help it, to meet that need. I mean, that's, that's what Christ did. That's what uh, God the Father shows in loving in the sense that fully sees the problem, sees it better than someone who hates, and then moves toward meeting that need. So it's that kind of love that, that sees, that isn't blind to it, but is also not <coughs> repelled or giving up because of it. <clears throat> All right, so again, as we said, John makes this sharp contrast. And so let's just take a look for a minute at that little contrast, compare and contrast, mostly contrast, uh, list that you've got there. It's really just based on a couple of other verses in the book of 1 John. So if we're loving our brothers and sisters, there's going to be some things that are true about us. And if we're hating our brothers and sisters, there's going to be some things that are true about it. And we'll get to the point of, well, what if you feel like most of the time, by God's grace, I love the, my, the brothers and sisters but I've got this one, or I've got this problem. Uh, because John uh, starts out with just, just make the distinction of, uh, by and large, are we loving the, uh, our, the brethren or hating? So one thing it says is that if we love, then we're walking in the light. Um, we talked about a lot of different ways the Bible uses light. We'll just kind of stick with the main two. Uh, that's usually talking about godliness, uh, righteousness, uh, and also knowledge. We're walking in darkness, speaking of evil and ignorance. Then it says there's no cause for stumbling. And again, that idea that we're seeing things as God sees them, as God reveals them, and so uh, not as prone to stumbling. Verses blinded by hate does not even know where he is going. Um, and maybe you pause a minute. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who just seemed like, wow, they were just blinded by hatred? Saul. I heard Saul somewhere. That's a, that's a good one. He just, you know, over and over, and occasionally, you know, David would do something to show him mercy, and he'd say, oh, you're, you're righteous, and uh, the Lord bless you, and so on, but just a little bit of time in that hatred and malice would just get a hold of them again. Do you have somebody else, Josh, or no? I was going to say Saul, but yeah. also applies to most of the evil kings. Yeah. And the responses to the followers of God. Yep. Any you know what you need to do to not suffer massive calamity. No. Good. Okay. Any other individuals you can think of? Okay. Who? <coughs> Pharaoh. That's a good one. Yeah. Cain. Hatred. Cain is a good one. Herod, yep, okay. Probably we could make a pretty good list, but those are, those are certainly some of the top ones. Probably even Jonah. Um, so, yes, hatred uh, can blind. Uh, so to go a little farther on that list, um, 1 John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil. So again, just, okay, apparently we're one or the other. Uh, are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Those two are frequently put together, not practicing righteousness uh, and also not um, loving uh, his brother. So on your sheet there, you've got um, those who love their brothers tend to practice righteousness. They're children of God versus those <coughs> who don't, who are children of the devil and do not practice righteousness. Uh, and then 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And some of these ones that we're going to hit in the future, I won't uh, delve into a lot. But just a good reminder, sometimes we can talk about someone who we're not right, you know, physically face-to-face with and, and talk of love, but if it doesn't live out in the uh, face-to-face uh, relationships we have, then he says that that's a lie. And then uh, a little, a few verses in 1 John 3. Uh, let me actually read those for you. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So another one is that we've passed out of death into life. He who does not love abides in death. And then it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So it goes even farther that there's a sense in which that hatred, and we, you see that with Christ where he says, if you look on a woman to lust, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. So in this idea of being angry or hating someone uh, is likened to being a murderer. So strong language. We know love by this, and so again, here's this example of Christ, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So the last few you've got on that, contrast, uh, not murderers versus murderers, lay down our lives for the brethren versus don't sacrifice for the brethren, meet the needs of the brethren or close the heart toward them, uh, loving in deed and truth versus loving only with words. So pretty strong contrast and John speaks of it a lot and we'll be digging into it in weeks to come. I wanted to take a little time and talk about love versus indifference. Uh, Greg did me a favor where I, a few weeks ago I said, you know, sometimes the opposite of love isn't hatred, it's indifference. Well, that's probably too strong. Um, you know, here I would say love and hatred are, are put forth as the opposites. But I do think indifference is at the same time, like even in that, those last couple verses I just read where it says, whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Uh, so loving, uh, not just with word or tongue, but indeed in truth. So I want to look at a couple of parallels with that and just, because sometimes we can go, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't hate somebody. I don't know that I show a lot of evidence that I love them, but I, I sure don't hate them. But indifference is treated pretty similarly. Whether or not it's the exact opposite is definitely not love. Uh, so think of, uh, think of a parable. There are other ones that we could look at, but we'll just look at one. So I've got down there under love versus indifference. So biblical, real, agape love, and the first thing is, is contrasted to self-serving indifference toward our neighbor in a parable. So, and it is uh, the Good Samaritan. So we won't go through the whole thing, but because you're probably pretty familiar, but just to refresh your memory on it. So it starts out where Jesus has asked someone, What's the greatest commandment? And they say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But then a, a couple verses later, it says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but if you can make the neighbor category pretty small, then maybe that's not, you know, maybe I'm doing fine. So Jesus then tells about this parable where this man gets beaten on the road and these people come by and they cross to the other side of the road. They just go past him. They choose to be indifferent, to not care for him in the sense that would really meet his needs. 
so it says, by chance a priest was going down the road when he saw him, he passed to the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So I mean, he didn't, they didn't pick up a stone and hit him, but they just didn't do anything for him. They just walked past. But it says, a Samaritan who is on a journey came upon him when he saw him. And it starts with, he felt compassion. So his heart went out to him, and you know the story. He took care of him. He dressed his wounds. He took him to a place where he could be further taken care of, um, paid money for him. And at the end, Jesus says, so which one was a neighbor to him? Which one loved him uh, as a neighbor? And, of course, it was the Samaritan. So there's a contrast in that parable between loving a neighbor and just not treating him as a neighbor, being indifferent to him. Then the second thing I have there is it's shown by sacrificing for others out of care for them. So the sense of caring for and loving seem to go together, not caring, because indifference basically is not caring. And we're kind of in a culture where, you know, phrases like whatever, uh, or it is what it is. I mean, they're just things that are not always terrible communications, but they kind of carry some baggage of, you know, it's okay to just not care. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting to me that, that one of the things that long ago uh, convinced me that Hinduism and some of the Eastern religions weren't where truth was, was part of it was you were to learn to not be moved by misery. Um, that, that that was a good thing to be impassive to that or indifferent. So John 15, 13, uh, again, these are familiar passages. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And it's interesting, and that's John, and then in, uh, earlier in John there is a parable that Jesus tells about the good shepherd. And it says the good shepherd again, lays down his life for the sheep, just like he has just said, greater love has no one than this. And it says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. So again, he doesn't actively kill the sheep, but he doesn't do anything to protect them either. Uh, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hireling flees and says, why? Because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So he's indifferent. It's just his job. He gets paid. He's not going to risk his life for these things. Uh, and so, again, you have this indifference versus this no greater love. Um, third, uh, Agape love sacrificially meets the deepest needs of others. And this is kind of related to uh, what we just read. But, but it is very specifically that, that love figures out and cares about what does this person really need? I mean, when you really love somebody, you try to figure out what would help them. What, what are they lacking? What are they struggling with? What do they really need? So 1 John 4, 9, by this, the love of God was manifested that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Um, just a powerful passage to what did, what did we need? Well, we needed salvation. We needed somebody to take the wrath that we couldn't bear. Um, or 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called a child of God, and such we are. And finally, 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So you have... God seeing us in our need, our greatest need, not just, I don't know, they just need a blessing today, but needed complete redemption and salvation and met that need. Uh, number four, love versus indifference. 
uh, biblical, real love cares enough to discipline and correct. So sometimes you get the idea that love is just always wonderful and, and uh, I mean, feels wonderful and it's uh, soft and affirming and so on. And you hear terms about tough love and uh, scripture kind of endorses that. So some of the passages that talk about God loving us enough to discipline and correct us, uh, this is the part of love that's more uncomfortable but still has a good outcome. Uh, Hebrews 12, 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then it uses even stronger, he scourges every son whom he receives. Uh, but then you, you skip down to verse 10, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And in Revelations 3.19, similarly, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then even when it's talking to parents, uh, again, pretty well-known verse, Proverbs 13.24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And again, our world would tell us just the opposite. If you use any kind of physical discipline, you must hate your son. You're just taking something out on him. You're taking out your own problems on him. Scripture uh, speaks in the face of that. Uh, I think I've shared before the first time, I still remember the first time I spanked my oldest daughter. So first time I spanked one of my kids, I remember thinking, this is just raw obedience. This is not what I would prefer to do to this uh, little girl that I love. Um, but again, that's where scripture is so helpful. There are things we just flat out don't know and wouldn't have guessed, and certainly the world around us is telling us very different things. Um, all right, so love cares enough to discipline and correct. And then lastly, love expresses itself in deep affection and God-honoring action. So it's not, you know, again, affections is more than just emotions, but it includes emotions. And I do think we want to watch that as much as we don't live by emotions, we don't make our decisions just based on emotions, you don't want to get to the point where you think they're bad. I mean, they're God-given, and they strengthen resolve, and they often help us in some wonderful ways. And even Jesus illustrates that. Uh, again, well-known passage where Lazarus has died, John 11:32. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. I mean, that's a normal thing. It, it, sure, it can be faked, but it's, it's also a real thing when you care about somebody and you see them struggling. Even if you know God is working there, it's something that should move us. And, and it, our goal is not to get to the point where we're just so... Uh, solid on God's sovereignty that we are unmoved and that that's really the place to be. I would say not. Let me read one more verse. Um, because it's interesting, it says, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, uh, the eyes of a blind man, have kept this man also from dying? So they kind of did look the next step and say, well, sure, he's weeping now, but he could have done something. And, you know, that, that maybe wasn't a terrible thing to ask. I don't know what their heart was in that. But uh, it is true when you're trying to figure out, does, does this person seem like they love the other person? And we never know their heart perfectly. Um, it is partly this affection and even with some emotion, but also that they do right things. Now, they were mistaken in the sense that they thought the best thing he could have done was to not let him 
die, but in fact he, he had bigger plans. But anyway, Tom, did you want to? Yeah, you know, similar to the indifference, it seems like another thing you could say is the opposite of love is love. That it's self-love mm. versus loving the other. Okay. So, uh, Proverbs 18 says, he who separates himself is seeking his own desire. And so another way we can say that, and this plays in to the indifference is really love itself. Right. And I would say, along those lines, the Good Samaritan, it seemed like the two that just crossed to the other side were thinking about, that's going to be, it might be dangerous, it's going to be a pain in the neck, it's got, you know, I might, uh, it's a Samaritan, I mean, there are all kinds of, but most, mostly it seemed very self-serving. And we, you know, again, I think we can judge them, and rightly so, but at the same time, we always want to look at ourselves and say, okay, when do I do that? Um, because our, our convenience can definitely get in the way of a lot of uh, appropriate expressions of love. So, yeah, then at the bottom of that, I just tried to sort of summarize. Indifference may not be the ap absolute opposite of love, but it is absolutely not love. It witnesses to the absence of love through the absence of the words, actions, affections, and attentions that would proceed from real love. So, you know, kind of think through that yourselves, because I do think, uh, again, if, if you're a little bit like me, that it's probably indifference can be more of an issue in our life uh, than what we would see as just overt hatred. Uh, there might be some people where you actually struggle with just hating them because of something that's happened or whatever, and that's obviously a serious thing, but I do think the indifference piece is something we want to look at because we, we want to get out of indifference. We want to actually love people. We're never going to do it perfectly this side of heaven, but we want to get a bit more like Christ in that. So along those lines, uh, this next question is, what to do if you notice you are not showing love for a brother or sister in Christ? So, I've got there um, a few things, and this, this is something we could spend, again, a long time. We're kind of moving relatively quickly through these as I want to... Um, not try to get ahead of ourselves in the next couple of chapters. but So remember how, while unlovely, you have been so loved. Uh, and we could probably say, I was having a talk with somebody about that, uh, when the Bible says things like God so loved, uh, that it, it generally means in such a way, not very, very much, but he does. But I, I would say he... God's love is both. It's, it's huge and abundant, and it's also in a very particular helpful way. So we were so loved. 1 John um, 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And part of it is just remembering when we find somebody kind of unlovely, and, and we are all unlovely to varying degrees, to varying people, um, so that God knew us. He saw us when we were dead, when we were filled with sin. Uh, and even as believers, it is possible to please him. Scripture tells us that. Uh, and yet there is much to repel him in the sense of, of the things we still think and do and feel. Um, and yet, he loved us. Um, another passage uh, we've already read uh, was where we were dead in our sin, children of wrath, uh, that Ephesians 2 verse, uh, that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Those are just great things to remind ourselves when we're trying to... It's very similar with forgiveness. When, when we're having a hard time forgiving somebody, 
it's partly because we're getting a little bit blind to how much we've been forgiven. If we can get our mind wrapped around that, it should be a whole lot easier to forgive. It should also be much easier uh, to love. And then uh, own it and confess it. Uh, again, we can kind of rationalize and say, well, I mean, but I don't hate him. I've never hit him. I've never, you know. But, but really thinking through, and again, that doesn't mean we're going to be able to express the love in actions and words and deeds you know, to everybody all the time. There's going to be people God brings into our uh, world day by day. But again, just seeking by God's grace to uh, love the ones he does bring into our path and that we, we're honest with ourselves if we're struggling with somebody and there's some, some bitterness that's creeping in because uh, sometimes we can just pretend that it's not there. So owning it, confessing it, and then finally repent and ask God to give you the love you lack. And that last part is pretty important because there are times where it's like, well, I... You know, at some level, I do want to love this person, but I'm not feeling it. Um, and so seeking God's help in that, a couple of passages that are helpful. Uh, there's a place where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, it's a pretty interesting couple of verses where he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So he doesn't say here how, but he does say, you know, we're, we're, our hearts are open to you. We are affectionate to you. And we're feeling some restriction back to us. Uh, open wide your heart to us. Romans 5, 5 says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then again, that Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love is one of them. We do need to seek God for love. when we. And, and again, that doesn't mean you have to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. But it does mean, you know, back to that, uh, what I hope is a pretty biblical definition of love, that we do genuinely want the best for somebody. There may be a lot of things we, don't, we just don't like about them, and they may be some things where you might even g genuinely or you know, appropriately not like certain things about what they do and wish they would change in those ways, but that you still care about them, you still love them, you still want them to grow closer to Christ. Um, you know, just true confessions. Uh, somebody, as I was driving here, doesn't go to this church, but that I have struggled with, and I saw something that reminded me of them, uh, and I just had to pray because I can't just make my mind just love them. But I can at least pray for them and just uh, ask that the Lord would continue to work in their life and, and draw them to himself. So... Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, we, our emotions struggle with that. We, in our flesh, we don't always want that. But um, just something to realize that we need the resources of God. We need the Spirit to sometimes enlarge our hearts. We need Him to pour out love within us uh, by His Spirit uh, that we can't just make that happen. Okay, going to move on. Any other comments on that? Yep. I know you want to move on, but uh, so I think this, uh, what we're talking about when you're, when you're talking about what does love for the brethren look like, it's natural to focus on the unlovely person, but it's, uh, I think it runs headlong into what's been I guess you would call it the 11th commandment, be nice. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Mm -hmm. Especially somebody that's grown up in the South. I mean, generally in the church, but especially in the South, you, you don't really tell somebody if they can disagree. You just talk polite. Right. And you don't really say what you mean. And the first 
Let's say the first time I really ran headlong into that was basic training. I was pretty sure that at 4 o'clock in the morning he hated my guts and everybody else. And I didn't have to wonder because he said he did. Right. Um, but that's not really, that's not the case. And then when I became an instructor, that absolutely was not the case. You, you care about these people. You're going to be laboring beside them in un, not very fun conditions and you see behaviors that need to change the form. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, that's a metaphorical example for Christians. And, and then flying, you know, you're doing 400, 500, 600 miles an hour, and after every flight, you would come down and debrief. And it wasn't always loving or what we would think being nice, mm -hmm. which is not, that, that has a rot that has come into the church, I think. That mm -hmm. I actually like you, but I'm, you know, I'm friends with you, and I'm but afraid to say a corrective action. And when we would get in, inspected for check rides, it was always from the outside because it's really hard to grade yourself. Mm -hmm. And you don't always see that outside thing for lacking that. Mm -hmm. And this uh, love for the brother, what it looks like, Probably using that metaphor and that example would be helpful. Right. No, that's good. And that, that kind of goes back to where it said that um, God loves us enough to correct and chasten. It'd be the same sort of idea that if we're trying to follow the love of God, that it includes things that we don't think of as loving and, and that don't feel it. We don't want them to tell us what we want to hear. Bless tell us the truth. I've got a daughter that's an RN. And she mm -hmm. had a great example last week of Blunt. 37 year old. She, her eyes were the color of yellow. Mm -hmm. And uh, her parents obviously loved her. She could say no wrong. She was angry, bitter, and she died last week. She was part of know, not in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure the People loved her. There's that part of love as well. Yes. Just the unlovely. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. No, that's good. And it's easier to say it than to do it on a regular basis or to receive it. So, okay. Well, let's jump into. He he then kind of moves into verses 12 to 14, uh, and it's been thought of, I I think rightly, as kind of a pastoral reassurance, like he's just put a couple of difficult tasks that, you know, I've written these things so you won't sin, and, and that, you know, you shouldn't be living in uh, a pattern of sin, and you should be loving your brothers. Uh, and so it seems like you, you would have not only unbelievers who are rightly hearing that, but believers who maybe are squirming a bit, and again, little of that can be okay, but, but not to live in doubt if we're true believers. So he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he, he seems to be stepping back a little bit, uh, you know, as with everything, uh, different commentators take this in different ways, but it seems like he's stepping back a little and saying, you're at varying stages in your walk with Christ. Uh, you know, some of these questions are to shake those who are literally not believers, but most of you I'm writing to are in one of these categories. And so, again, just kind of somewhat briefly going through this, maturity is not directly based on age or number of years as a believer. You look at Scripture and you see uh, the authors of Scripture, sometimes in Hebrews, sometimes in Paul's letters, saying, 
you know, you really should be mature, but I have to give you milk because you're not ready. Uh, so it's not always those who are older or who even who have been believers a long time. Should be some correlation there, but uh, that's not always the case. And sometimes a relatively young believer, I, I often, I still am amazed by somebody like a Spurgeon who you read some of the things that he preached early on and, and some of the ways he handled himself, God obviously matured him very quickly. Um, another thing about uh, these different stages of maturity, it doesn't affect your position as a child of God. If you're a child of God, I mean, yes, we want to be fathers. Uh, we want to be um, people who are mature in Christ, uh, but not to the point of, feeling like we're, we somehow have to earn and, or keep re-earning our salvation. Uh, and it can affect our experience as a child of God if we're mature versus if we're still tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, life can look rather different. Um, and it can certainly affect the adorning of the gospel. If somebody has been a believer a long time and yet uh, they have a terrible temper or they're... Uh, prone to lust, or they're just uh, foolish and still very self-centered. That just doesn't adorn the gospel well. And so he then he gets into stages of the Christian life. And again, there are different ways we could look at this, but I do think this is three different, that he's kind of lumping into three categories. And it, John just always seems to do things a little differently. Why did he go from little children to fathers and then back to the young men? And, and why does he repeat exactly the same thing on a couple of them? And then, you know, I'm not in a place to explain all that, so I'm not going to try very hard. And when I read others trying to explain it, I just went, yeah, I'm not so sure. So, you know, I, I quote it to you so often, but I'm going to quote it again, Alistair Begg. Uh, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So we're going to try to get the main things. Uh, so he says of little children, I'm just going to kind of, I just sort of paired together. Uh, he says, your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake, and you know the Father. And so often that's just a, I mean, that's just a sweet thing when somebody's a new believer <clears throat> And maybe you can remember this. I can rather vividly forgiven what was a spectacular thing because God takes a lot of us through a time of deeper conviction about our sin before we become a believer. So, you know, we're getting a little, I just remember my eyes being a little more open, something that hadn't bothered me at all that I was doing that was pretty serious. And all of a sudden... It just, the weight of it just was kind of crushing. And to a short time later have this sense that, that is amazing, I am forgiven. And that that often as a, a young believer uh, is that beautiful sense of forgiveness. And, and it is a good reminder that it's for his name's sake that ultimately he cares about us, he loves us, he sent his son to die for us. Uh, Christ loved us that much, and there are certainly verses that say that. Uh, but it is also ultimately to show his mercy. Uh, Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And also, you know that he's a father. Again, it's, it's not the deepest sense of that yet where you understand so much of what that all means. Hopefully that grows with time, but you have that Abba Father, that you have a Father that cared about you. Um, there's kind of a minor sense in which we're the children of God uh, because he created us, Acts 17, 29, being then the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, and that's where Paul was on uh, Mars Hill and talking mostly to unbelievers. But in a, in a much deeper, true sense, 
we're adopted when we come into his family. Romans 8.15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Um, it's, um, I can't help thinking of, so we have a new granddaughter as of a couple of months ago, and um, uh, my daughter's husband is he's just, in my opinion, particularly good with her. And so we're getting all these pictures, and, and they're just eye to eye, and this sweet little baby just looking him right in the eye. I don't know how much she knows, but I think she knows that's somebody special. Um, and it's a, it's a sweet thing, and I, I do think it's just a, a little mirror of God and us when he adopts us, takes us as his child, uh, that we at least know we are forgiven for his namesake and we know the Father. And then he jumps to fathers, and it's kind of interesting because he used that word know again, you know him, who has been from the beginning. And it, it doesn't go into a great discussion about that, but I think in the context we can see or uh, surmise that it is a deeper experiential knowing that uh, these fathers have come to know uh, the Father in a deep way. Um, Ephesians 3.16 is that beautiful prayer that that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That deep knowing that it's just, it's like he can't even say enough, so it's beyond knowledge. Uh, And I do think when it says, you know him who has been from the beginning, it's particularly pointing to Christ. Uh, it kind of harkens back to the very first verse of 1 John where it says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So I do think it means this deep knowing of Christ that you fathers have. Um, and then the perhaps one of the reasons he saves the young men for last is it kind of helps tell us, so how do you get from one to the other? How do you get from being a little child who's got blessings, but you don't want to stay there forever? Uh, it's it's kind of cute maybe to be in diapers when you're a month old, not so much when you're 15. So young men, it says you are strong. The word of God abides in you. It uses that word abide again. And you have overcome the evil one. That's probably the most jarring one, really. Uh, But I think, first of all, to just say that the word of God abiding in them is so crucial for them to grow. The word of God needs to abide in us. Uh, It needs to be the thing that we look to. And again, it's not trying to be a full treatment. Well, what about uh, the experiences God brings us through? What about suffering? I mean, there are other things, but they're informed by the Word of God. Why are we suffering in this way? How am I supposed to respond to this? What's God doing here? Uh, Or the end of, I think it's Hebrews 5, where it talks about, uh, that's one of the ones where he says, you you should be mature, but I'm having to give you milk. Uh, But solid food is for those who have been trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. Um, so, so certainly living out, in fact, uh, Chris hit that in the sermon, that is not just reading the word, memorizing the word, uh, it's abiding in it, but as we live our lives, living it out, putting it into practice, uh, that one becomes uh, mature and becomes strong. And then just lastly, just a moment on this um, overcoming the evil one, a couple of passages that might help a little. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They had learned to do some of that. 1 John 4, 4, 
You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. And that's talking about those who are of the world. Because greater is he, Christ, who is in you than he who is in the world. And then 1 John 5, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's not a a full treatment of that, but in a sense we've been given victory, we've been guaranteed victory, and then we begin to live that out in a way that evidences that victory. And so these young men are showing that kind of uh, strength and growth and are coming to the place of knowing Christ in that deep, intimate way. Okay, we better stop. Any last comments, words, questions? Okay, yeah. Just to share that I'm yeah. very glad you brought the, not the opposite, indifference. Because personally, kind of like we forget that it grieves the Holy Spirit in us who starts the gift of love. Mm-hmm. And by that, the Holy Spirit is a person. And whenever we withhold our love, that indifference before it hurts somebody, hurts God. Mm. And that leads us from growing into Christ's likeness. And later on, John wrote to the church in Ephesus that you don't forsake the first love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, l- lukewarm is never good. Okay, let me pray. Father, we are uh, a needy people. We are weak in so many ways, and our love is often weak. Father, we pray that you would work in each of us, that you would work in us as a body. Uh, of believers as well, that you would give us uh, a deep and passionate love, uh, that you would help us to uh, care for and uh, seek to meet the needs of those who are around us. Lord, we thank you that you have people that you give us to love us as well, and we thank you that you have loved us perfectly. Uh, Father, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.